1 Corinthians 5, Paul shifts from divisions in the church to talking about bad behavior in the church. The worldly thinking that has brought about the divisions has also brought some egregious sins forward. As we look through the reading of God's word, if you would join me in prayer. Blessed Lord, in your great and kind providence, all holy scriptures were written and preserved for our instruction. We ask then that you would give us grace to hear them proclaim this day. That you would strengthen our souls with the fullness of their divine teaching. Keep us from pride and irreverence. And may it please you to guide us in the deep things of your heavenly wisdom. And from your great mercy that you would lead us by your word to do everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In whose name we now pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 5. Looking at the first five verses to start. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The word of the Lord. On Christian Anderson's classic, The Emperor's New Clothes, it gives a great snapshot of collective foolishness. Swindlers talk a whole town into believing a lie. The magnificent new clothes they are making cannot be seen by any who are stupid or incompetent. And so everyone goes along with it until a small child says the obvious. But he hasn't got anything on. The Corinthians have been boasting in their great wisdom. They think they are on the fast track with their superior spiritual insight and knowledge. And Paul now throws cold water on them. He tells them, essentially, you're not wearing anything. What you are boasting in should make you ashamed. Collective foolishness is running amok in Corinth. As Christians, we are to put on a new identity in Christ, which includes his holiness, and it includes an openness to sinners. Real wisdom is required to navigate between these. At times, the body of Christ must act to maintain the holiness of Christ in her midst. There are times to exclude and there are times to embrace. And Lord, help us when we get these mixed up. How is a church to reflect Christ's exclusive holiness and maintain Christ's inclusive openness to sinners? Well, Because Jesus has set the standards for his people in both of these areas, we are to live within them with humility and integrity. Jesus himself laid out the broad principles for dealing with sin in the church. Matthew 18, very familiar to us. If someone sins against you, go alone. If that doesn't work, take two or three more. And then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, how all this gets lived out in a local church is never easy. The wisdom to know when to exclude and who to embrace is a challenge. Well, looking at when to exclude. Having 
said at the very end of chapter 4, Paul said, do you want me to come to you with a stick or in gentleness to deal with your issues? And he now says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Uh, that phrase would be speaking of his, his stepmom. He goes, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So these Corinthians, they're, they're puffed up with their spiritual knowledge. They think they've even arrived to a place beyond the Apostle Paul. And Paul gives them an emperor's clothes moment. You're not wearing anything. And you can sense his utter disbelief. It's actually reported. His amazement at what they're considering as enlightened thinking. At the end of chapter 4, Paul, three times, he says, you're puffed up, you're arrogant. And what are they boasting in? What are they puffed up about, arrogant, as verse 2 says? Are they sitting there going, yeah, that's the third orphanage we started. (laughs) It's kind of amazing, isn't it? That would at least be something. But no, they're puffed up and arrogant about some guy being with his stepmom. And they think this is a great expression of their Christian freedom. And how they have responded to this sin, it shows that it's no longer just an issue of an individual sin. It involves the whole church. It's a public scandal. We will see it more clearly in chapter 6, but it seems part of the problem is one of, of theology. Some believe that they are so free in Christ that it doesn't matter what they do. Some have this added to this idea that, you know, whatever happens in the body stays in the body. It doesn't have any effect on my, my spirit. Kind of like that twisted Vegas advertising from years back. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The only thing that stays in Vegas is your money. You bring it all back with you. Corinth, everything you do in your body, you're bringing back with you. You're not immune. It's so bad that even in a promiscuous culture like Rome and Greece, this was considered absolutely awful by everyone. Disgusting and outrageous. It's an utter and complete embarrassment to the church. And following Old Testament regulations, Paul tells them repeatedly some six different ways, remove the sinner. And this man is a member of the church. It's clear that his stepmom is not because Paul is not including her in the conversation. And he says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, Paul has already concluded, he's just drawing directly from the Old Testament laws, Leviticus 18.8. A clear condemnation of being with a stepmom. Now, likely she was much younger than her husband who's deceased. It could even been something about Roman inheritance issues that were at stake maybe for the man. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what any of the reasons are. It's awful. And Paul says, I've already pronounced judgment on this one. And he's telling him that he is present in his authority as an apostle, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you know where I stand on this. Get this done. This is not needing any debate when you are assembled in the name of the lord jesus 
and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, it's a little difficult in the language. What he's saying is they're to formally meet. They already have Paul's judgment with them. He's present in this way. He's present with his judgment. And it's not simply his personal opinion, but in the power of the Lord, the Lord himself from his word has declared what this is to be. There's no ambiguity here. And in this language of formal judgment and pronouncement, Paul is saying it's not his decision alone. It includes others in the church. No one person gets this kind of authority to excommunicate. And then he says, verse 5, you deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Delivering him over to Satan. One commentator, he captures this meaning of Paul really well. He says, that means putting the man outside of the sphere of God's protection within the church. Leaving him exposed to satanic forces of evil in hope that this experience will cause him to repent and turn back to fellowship of the church. And one of the goals then, there are many, of discipline is repentance, restoration of the sinner. Paul uses this phrase about handing over to Satan in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20 as well, regarding two notorious sinners, Hymenaeus and Alexander, also being handed outside of the church. And the whole church is a part of this process. They're responsible for the members within. A public and disgraceful sin has sullied the name of Christ in Corinth. And immediate action is required to expel the unrepentant man. But Paul also wants to clear up some misunderstandings. He wants them to know not only when to exclude, but what to embrace. In verse 6, he says, your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven is, is yeast, likely in the sense it's used here. It's a, a small batch, a little amount was taken out of, of the older one and then put into the newer one. It's a process of fermentation. But just like Jesus did in the Gospels, Paul is using this as a metaphor, not against bread with yeast in it. He's using it as a metaphor of sinfulness, how sinfulness affects others. In English, we have the proverb... A rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. Same idea. Now, Paul may be mentioning the Passover specifically because in that ceremony, you were to remove all the yeast, all the leaven from your home. And he's telling them that like that, they are now unleavened in the sense of that sinfulness has been removed from them. And let us celebrate the festival. Not telling them to celebrate the Passover. He's speaking of positively the whole life in Christ. Their whole life in Jesus is a new identity under the reality of Christ's victorious sacrifice. That has been accomplished. So live this way. Sincerity and truth are now a part of your new identity in Jesus. His death and resurrection have transformed us into a holy community. In the church, we do not embrace malice and evil, but sincerity and truth. Which leads us to the consideration of those outside the church. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. This letter has been lost to us. He wrote previously. 
Some have misunderstood what he wrote and likely others intentionally distorted it. He said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since you would need to go out of the world. Now, we tell our children to use their inside voice in the house. We have an inside voice and an outside voice that's used in the right circumstance. Paul is telling them that they have an inside the church voice and an outside the church voice. They're not to cut off contact with unbelievers. They're to live in society along with everyone else. There's no ghetto attitude here. No, let's pull away and put everybody else out there bad and we're going to be the holy huddle. No, he's expressing what Jesus did in John 17. Be in the world, but not of the world. Holiness within the church and an openness to sinners outside the church. He goes on. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Six representative sins that are habitual and unrepentant. Uh, scholars have connected these with the behaviors mentioned in, in particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. Paul, he's assuming a continuity between the moral ethics of the Old Testament and the life of the Christian. It's, it's just assume rightly so that what god spoke of in the old is still continued in the new the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in christ therefore gentiles do not have to become jewish but the ethical laws summarized by the ten commandments they're universal to everyone but he goes further verse 12 for what do i have to do with judging outsiders it's not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? The expected answer, yes. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. The judgment of the world, it falls to God. God deals with the universal problem. What happens within the church is for Christians to take care of. The flagrant sinner in the church is banned from church community participation. And Paul quotes from Deuteronomy this phrase, purge the evil from your midst. It's used some six or seven times in Deuteronomy. What's interesting is there, it refers to sins requiring capital punishment. Paul reframes this as excommunication. The role that Israel had as a theocracy, as a body politic, is no longer valid for the church. The church's discipline as our PCA constitution will remind us, the church's discipline is ministerial and declarative. We do not carry the sword. We do not enforce civil rules. We do not enforce criminal rules. The church of Christ is to reflect Jesus' exclusive holiness and still maintain Jesus' inclusive openness to sinners. Inside voice, outside voice. Yeah, but what about the front porch, the patio, the tent, the backyard, the natural amphitheater, a canyon, the lanai on the shore of a lake, and on it goes. We all have these 
Is it inside? Is it outside? Questions. Because it's difficult. It's never easy. It takes wisdom and discernment. And if you come from a background where the discipline of the church was not a thing at all, this can sound strange. People will say, well, I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge others. Well, yes and no. Use your inside voice when you're inside. But if there's a fire, warning others by yelling, that's the right thing to do. We live by wisdom. Letting sin go unchecked is graceless. Tolerating what God does not is not loving. So what what principles then do we see here at work in this passage for us to draw from? Paul is echoing Deuteronomy. And there we see part of what Corinth is doing is what we'd see in Deuteronomy. There's a violation of the covenant. God's moral laws are being broken. So one of the principles we see is covenant violation. God's moral law is broken. There's a danger as well to the whole community of guilt by association. There's a danger of the holiness of the church. And there's a danger to this particular brother staying in unrepentant sin. Those are principles by which we navigate our understanding of discipline. And determining these are never easy. There isn't a time, even when it's done well, that someone won't complain about the process or think it could have been handled better. Happens like that all the time. It's difficult. One pastor remarks, he said, it's not always easy to know when a sin is a frailty that must be borne by the church or when it's a scandal that must be disciplined. Remember, hard things are hard. There is no way to make hard things easy. That's in every area of life. You can make them worse, but you don't make them easy. If you come in to a doctor's appointment, he's looking at you and he goes, knock, knock. You're like, who's there? You have cancer. You're not impressed. He didn't make that better for you. There's no good way to tell you you have cancer. It's always awful, but you can tell somebody in a bad way, but not in a good way. Dealing with sin in people's life is never easy. It is always going to be hard. And like so many facets of our Christian faith, imperfection marks even our best efforts. I appreciate Eugene Peterson. He says in this, he says, there's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there's sin in the church. But there's no other place to be a Christian except the church. It has been the case that some churches have expelled the wrong person, punishing the innocent party. It has happened. That victims of abuse have been punished and the perpetrator left in good standing. There have been times when nothing has been done at all to anyone. There have been cases. Two couples basically swapped spouses in the church. Stay in the same church and nobody said anything to either one of them. That's happened. One church does the right thing and another church takes in the offender saying... Oh, we won't be so judgmental. And everything in between. 
But it doesn't mean that we are exempted from the difficult work of maintaining the peace and the purity of the church. All it means is that it's difficult. Godly elders must deal with specific cases for which there may be no specific biblical instruction. We're not given a manual of discipline. And most of the time, this is done in private. And so I'll say, if you have questions or concern, ask. To the level that you're able to talk about it, to be able to say, well, I'm not really sure about this. This is what I see. Well, ask. Ask questions. If something like this is going on, pray for, for those who are involved. Do your best not to gossip or to assume the worst of either the leaders or the offender. It's a part of the whole community. And what we see, even here in Corinth, is that this is a means of what God is working on to bring the purity of his people. Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is encouraging them to receive the repentant person back. And most commentators believe he's talking about the case he's writing of here in chapter 5. So in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. This flagrant sinner, Paul now is saying he's repented. He he needs to be restored and brought back in. Love needs to be reaffirmed to him. And that's always the hope. That's always the hope when, when the Lord is dealing with us in terms of our discipline. That there's a repentant heart and a turn, and a turn back towards Him. Jesus walked among sinners, willing to embrace all of them, but not indiscriminately. Jesus would say at times, go and sin no more. Love both embraces And it excludes. That's the nature of of biblical love. It's not sort of this American idea that, you know, we do marshmallow and we just accept everything. Love actually has real boundaries because you care for someone. You don't let them stay in something that's destroying their soul. That is unloving. As Hebrews 12 reminds us, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And because he loves us, he is in the the process of making you and I reflect the the glory and the grandeur of Jesus. And as we live that out with one another, we are then to be that for each other. Sometimes that iron sharpening iron where we see and, and we're to help and to come alongside. Sometimes a frailty to be born. Other times a sin to be disciplined. And that is the life in the body of Christ. And it is a messy life until the Lord returns. But until then, we have the privilege of walking behind our Savior, knowing that we are being made in His image and likeness, that His holiness has become our holiness. His righteousness has become our righteousness. And that therefore we go into the world as ambassadors of him, with an openness to those outside so that they see and smell the aroma and the life of Christ in us. 
through the hope of glory. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful that indeed you do discipline those you love. You have not left us, Father, abandoned. You have not left us to our own devices. But Lord, that you have called us out of darkness into light by the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray and ask that you would use us as heralds of your kingdom of that good news. Father, give us wisdom and discernment that we would be able to live with one another well, knowing when, Father, to step things up in discipline, whether to bear things in patience and everything in between. Father, we need your wisdom. We need your spirit. So we pray and ask for that. And we pray, Father, that you would protect the peace and the purity of your church, that she would shine the radiant glory of Jesus here in the valley, Father, and far beyond into the world. And this we would ask through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.